0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C, and in today's show, I speak to Su Lin Wong, the economist, correspondent, and host of The Prince, a podcast on China's President Xi Jinping. If you want to get a deeper understanding on Xi Jinping's China, this is one podcast I would highly recommend as its eight-part series helps us navigate the life of arguably one of the most powerful men in the world. Welcome, Suleen, and congratulations on such an excellent podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Philip, and really pleased you enjoyed The Prince.
1: Let's start with the motivation behind this podcast. You know, what triggered the interest to uncover perhaps one of the most consequential men in our history?
0: I must say that it wasn't actually my idea. It was my boss's idea to make an eight-part podcast series on Xi Jinping. And when they approached me to see if I would host, my immediate reaction was, Hmm. Could we maybe pick an easier topic? Uh, <laughs> this sounds rather challenging. Uh, but they were adamant to their credit and um yeah, we sort of we we pressed on and 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 I understand why they really wanted a series on Xi Jinping. You know, he has consolidated an enormous amount of power over the past 10 years that he's mm. been in office and He and many Chinese officials would argue that he needs that power to make China the superpower that it deserves to be from their perspective. But the issue is that the future of 1.4 billion people and many, many more people beyond that now hinges on the mind of this one man. So it's really important that we try and figure out what's happening inside that mind and better understand where he came from and where he might be taking the Chinese Communist Party and China, the country, no matter how difficult that might be.
1: The whole idea of him being so powerful, someone who is just in, incomparable, right? The only comparison is Mao Zedong because the, the leaders prior to him don't don't seem to stack up to seize.
0: For decades after the death of Mao, China was ruled by cautious collective leadership through the Chinese Communist Party, which might I add is the largest political party in the whole world Mm. with many more party members than the population of the whole of Germany. Uh, And there was this norm that people would rule for 10 years and then they would step down and make way for the next guy, always a guy, never a woman. Mm. Uh, And Xi Jinping has shattered that norm. We just saw him decide to stay on for, you know, another five years, at least perhaps 10 more years, uh, perhaps longer than that. He hasn't named a successor. And so, you know, I think that is one sign of, you know, just how different he is. But if you also look at uh, how China has changed in the past five, 10 years under the leadership of Xi Jinping, I think, you know, it's become a lot more assertive, a lot more aggressive. And I think a lot of that can be traced to Xi Jinping himself.
1: And let's trace back to his history. You know, the title of the podcast is The Prince, and it's very telling, right? And as many layers to it, as you explained throughout the podcast, uh, we know in the first episode that Xi was a princeling, i.e. a descendant of prominent and influential senior communist officials, but he really didn't have an easy childhood, did he?
0: That's right. So Xi Jinping was born into elite party royalty. His dad was a right-hand man of Mao Zedong. And so as a result, you know, when Xi was born in the early 1950s, most of China was living in abject poverty. Yet Xi Jinping lived in a very fancy compound. Uh, His family had nannies and drivers and security guards. He ate really good food, relatively speaking. He went to the best schools for the children of party officials But then when he was nine years old, his dad was purged by Mao and Xi Jinping's whole world was turned upside down. This was around the time that mobs loyal to Mao Zedong were unleashed on Chinese society, you know, and they beat, tortured and killed many, many people. It was a very, very chaotic time in the country's history. Uh, And Xi Jinping was swept up in that. And he has written subsequently about how these mobs, these Red Guards, gave him five minutes to live, and he genuinely feared for his life. You know, he was in detention centres. One time he tried to escape and he ran home to his mother and begged her for food, and she tossed him out because she was fearful for her own safety. Eventually, Mao Zedong decided to send millions of young urban Chinese to the countryside to learn from the peasants and, you know, experience hard labour, and Xi Jinping was one of those kids. So he ended up living in a Chinese village, uh, which was incredibly poor. You know, there was no electricity. He lived in a cave for seven years. I don't think there are many other world leaders who can put that on their resume. And um, So he really had a very, very tumultuous childhood. He saw a lot. And many of his generation, after those traumatic experiences of the Cultural Revolution, decided they wanted nothing to do with, the Chinese Communist Party, and even nothing to do with China. And that's why many of that generation moved overseas. But Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping took a very, very different lesson from his childhood and teenage years. It wasn't that the Chinese Communist Party in and of itself was bad. It was that the party had lost control. And if he ever rose to the top of the party, he would make sure that the party didn't lose control again. And that's actually what we've really seen Under his leadership over the past 10 years, we've seen him really ramp up ideological discipline. He's genuinely clamped down on corruption but also to get rid of his um, enemies. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen this real fear of chaos um, and this obsession with control reflected in how he now rules China.
1: I think it's very important point to make about his desire for control, and that's very much a lesson of his childhood, that what happened here was that the Communist Party lost control. And when I listened to the podcast, and you covered it quite extensively, that Xi was very committed to stamp out this stench of corruption in the party, which was to him akin to losing control, isn't it? The series painted, I think, beautifully the lavish lifestyle, for example, of red mansions and officials going off to golf courses. So when he decided that he needed to take control of the party, clearly that didn't endear himself to the party, isn't it?
0: That's right. And I think what's important to remember is when Xi Jinping came to power, there was a lot of unrest in the Middle East. Uh, You know, there was the Arab Spring. We were seeing dictators being toppled. And Xi Jinping himself was very closely following what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, And, you know, we interviewed one of a top American official who had a conversation with Xi Jinping about the Arab Spring. And it seemed like Xi Jinping's conclusion was that these countries in the Middle East were incredibly corrupt and that actually was a genuine threat to the governments of these these countries. And so Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party were you know, very, very worried about the mm-hmm. future of the party and the extent to which corruption might become existential for the Communist Party. Uh, and when he came to power, he imposed this very, very sort of brutal corruption crackdown, which continues to this very day. Now, to your question, I don't think that that has endeared him to the very, very elite in China, you know, the sort of business people and the political elite who were the beneficiaries of this much more corrupt system. But I think the perspective of, say, ordinary Chinese working class, middle class people is quite different. And for them, you know, under Xi Jinping, China has genuinely become um, an easier place for them to live, to send their kids to school. You know, they don't necessarily have to bribe their kids' teachers in the way that they used to. Or if they go to the hospital, they don't necessarily have to bribe the local doctor. Um, So it really depends who you are in China and how your life personally has been impacted by this corruption crackdown.
1: Sounds like a populist by no stretch of any imagination.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I would say a populist who you know has a very firm grip on the country's censorship apparatus, the country's propaganda apparatus, and you know is increasingly developing a very very sophisticated surveillance state.
1: And the the whole point of this observation of corruption uh, points to me that you know before I was listening to the podcast, I had this whole impression that the the risk or the the driver that influenced China's shift in politics were quite internal-driven. But what you kind of demonstrate was that there are many external exogenous factors, right, that actually informed his principles, his way of thinking, for example, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and as you were saying, the Arab Spring. And many times you paint the story about the Chinese Communist Party, all nearly sometimes on, on the brink of perhaps collapse or of of implosion. But in your estimation, when was the Communist Party the most vulnerable? You, you talk about Tiananmen Square. Was that when it was at its most vulnerable then?
0: What I argue in The Prince is that the moments in Chinese history where the Chinese Communist Party has been most vulnerable is when there is political infighting at the very, very highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party. So, as you mentioned, that is actually what happened in 1989. You know, there was political infighting at the top of the party that then spilled out into Tiananmen Square. And then again in 2012, just as Xi Jinping was taking power, there was this charismatic rival called Bo Xilai who was really trying to challenge see, and challenge the party elders um, and he himself wanted to become the leader of China and so again we saw uh, this infighting at the very very highest levels of the party so mm. I think you know from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective the greatest risk for them in terms of whether or not there could be some kind of collapse is is internal.
1: So then with this whole point and concern about political infighting is that why you know after after you saw the convention that took place in October, he's basically appointed his top six, top seven leaders, all his loyalists. Um, that's not sustainable, is it?
0: Mm, yeah. So, I mean, it really was fascinating to watch the recent party congress and see, you know, just how much Xi Jinping has consolidated his power and how he surrounded himself with loyalists. Now, in terms of, you know, whether or not it's sustainable, I think, you know, it, it raises some very big questions like, is he getting good information from these people? You know, are they willing to tell him what's actually happening on the ground in China? Or is the system now structured such that basically, unless you've known Xi Jinping for several decades, unless you worked with him back when he was in the provinces, it's going to be very, very hard for you to get mm-hmm. a promotion to the top of the party. Um, and so people are people now just telling Xi Jinping what they think that he wants to hear? And what does that mean for policymaking in China now and into the future? Do
1: you think he's a predictable leader, though? That's, I think, the question going forward. Can we anticipate what he's likely to do next or his style of leadership in the next four to five years in China? When you listen to your podcast, you highlight many circumstances where people had certain expectations of his leadership, that he would be a bit more... more calmer, a bit less muscular in his external policy, but it came out the other way, for example, the persecution of Uyghurs. I guess the past isn't the most definite predictor of the future, right, with with respect to Xi's leadership style.
0: I think many, many people got Xi Jinping wrong as he was coming to power. And, you know, I'm not just talking about China watchers in the West. You know, many Chinese people, you know, the political elite were hoping that he would be some kind of reformer and the the most obvious thing people looked to was, was Who his father was And uh, Xi Jinping's father was considered A bit of a reformer Open-minded, progressive Friends with the Dalai Lama And so that was what many people Were hoping Xi Jinping himself would be like Now, obviously Those predictions from 10 years ago Have turned out to be totally wrong uh, and I think, you know, that, that's like a very interesting separate conversation about what that tells us about China watching and, and how much we really know about China and the Chinese Communist Party. But I think, you know, there's another, there's another question of um how how predictable is Xi Jinping? And the reality is he now faces enormous headwinds, you know, economic headwinds, demographic headwinds, all kinds of foreign policy challenges. So I think the sort of domestic political environment, as well as the international political environment and economic environment, is all very, very unpredictable right now. And so, as a result, I think it's hard to argue that you know we we're going to we we can say exactly what Xi Jinping is going to do next.
1: All right, we're heading into some messages, and we come back. How Xi's presidency has transformed China. Stay tuned. BFM eighty nine point nine. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Su Lin Wong, the economist, correspondent and host of The Prince, a podcast on China's President Xi Jinping. And now let's turn our attention to, I think, your personal struggles in China. But I think your struggles were not unique to many uh, China watchers or Western journalists because many of you guys... Struggled with intimidation and heavy handedness by party officials, you know, and 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 throughout the podcast, you were you know recounting your personal experiences, and I chuckled as you tried to coax your mum on her runang recipe in Sydney. My question to you is: What was your outlook on China then, and how different is it covering in China versus outside China?
0: Great question, but first I must uh, give a shout out to Malaysia. My parents are Malaysian Chinese. Mum was born and raised in Johor Bahru, and continues to this very day to make excellent rendang (laughs) <laughs> which features in the podcast? Yeah, it, you, you're right. I mean, covering China in China is a tough assignment, and you know, I was detained new countless times. Like, you know, I used to cover North Korea from the Chinese side of the border, and um, yeah, I was constantly being hauled off to police stations, and the police were escorting me to the airport or train station, and trying to get me to to leave and, and go back to Beijing. So, you know, it's it's really very very tough. Reporting on the ground in China, but at the same time, I just think it's so invaluable being there. You know, speaking to people day in day out, just getting a feel of of what the country is like. You know, this incredibly complicated, diverse, fascinating place. It's very hard to cover from overseas. Unfortunately, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party has expelled many many foreign correspondents, or you know, it's been very very difficult to get journalist visas to work in China, obviously the zero COVID policy over the past few years, further complicated matters. So now I think I know more China correspondents who are Outside of China than inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we're all, all trying to peer in and get a glimpse of what might be happening. But the reality is it's so much more difficult trying to cover China from outside. And I also think over time your China knowledge degrades if you're not there on the ground speaking to people day in, day out. So I think there are very important China stories to be done outside of the country especially as china grows you know even stronger even richer even more powerful and is increasingly reaching out into southeast asia asia more broadly many many countries around the world but you know, having boots on the ground in China is, I think, really essential. And we are all suffering because our knowledge of China is diminished when there aren't enough foreign journalists on the yeah. ground. The only other thing I would say is that, you know, yes, foreign journalists have it tough, but my local Chinese journalist friends have it so much tougher. And, you know, the risks are so much greater for them. At worst, foreign correspondents are expelled. Chinese journalists end up in jail sometimes just for trying to report on what's happening in front of them in their own societies.
1: And that's the concern that you you report and, okay, you might temper it down or you might, I think, I guess, uh, question the compromise a bit on the integrity, which is just as bad. But I guess equally just as bad as you won't get a good sense of what is the reality on the ground. And a classic example is the COVID crisis. You know, many claim that it is one of the toughest crises that uh, C faced throughout his career, but we don't really have a good sense, right? on the scale of dissatisfaction and unhappiness among the
0: Chinese? That was a question we really mould a lot in the making of the podcast. Uh, and in most countries, there are all kinds of ways you can figure out how popular a leader is. You know, sometimes there are elections or there are there is public polling and surveys and academics who are able to freely do studies. There are journalists who can look at the popularity of a leader. All of that is is not available in China, and so I think it's it's basically impossible to know what ordinary Chinese people think of Xi Jinping. I think right, that there are real differences, whether you're talking about Chinese who are rich versus poor, Chinese who live in the countryside versus the cities, younger people, older people. That there is a huge divergence. But the reality is that the censorship, propaganda, and surveillance are all so powerful now that people just do not feel like they can safely speak about Xi Jinping.
1: Hence this great firewall that China has erected. Many feel that Xi's leadership has, in a sense... Put all these controls and limits all around the internet, and I was just reflecting on on also a quote which was mentioned in the podcast about President Bill Clinton saying that it's really tough, right, to regulate the internet. Uh, it's like nailing Jello to the wall, uh, but he seems to have done that relatively well. So will he have the last laugh then?
0: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think Bill Clinton was very much proven wrong by Xi Jinping, and he has really been able to control the internet in China in a way that I think many. American presidents previously uh, couldn't have predicted. It's very hard to see the Communist Party scaling back the propaganda and the censorship and the surveillance. And so in that way, I think, you know, Xi Jinping has all these very powerful tools at his disposal going forward.
1: With that in mind, with, with this censorship and division, do you expect the to create two worlds, a world which is China centric and another world that is governed by the West—is that what he's kind of gravitating towards? That there are two worlds in this broader world. Then
0: I think Xi Jinping wants to make the world safer for the Chinese Communist Party, and you know that that can happen in so many different kinds of ways from from the party's perspective. And we can see this increasingly. You know, they're trying to control. <laughs> what is said about China and Xi Jinping, um, they're trying to control what businesses say about China. Again, you know, in, with varying degrees of success. So I think at the moment, the party just is hoping that everywhere will be safer for the party and, and everyone will self-censor when it comes to China. Uh, but I think, you know, we have to wait and see how successful the party will be.
1: And and the podcast clearly demonstrates that he is- Clearly, one of the or the most powerful men in the world. But do you think that's the case in five years' time or perhaps 10 years' time?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, as I was saying earlier, he really faces huge economic headwinds, huge demographic headwinds as China's population shrinks and as the economy slows. So that's one massive factor. I think, you know, the other thing is are people around him at the very top of the party telling him what he wants to hear or giving him like really, really good, reliable information that will make good policy? And and how much nuance does the Chinese Communist Party have when it comes to making policy? I think it's COVID policy is a very good example that it was either, it was like an on switch or an off switch. It was either zero COVID or just let COVID rip through the country and, um, have very, very catastrophic consequences. Whereas in other countries, we saw like more nuance in, in COVID policies. You know, there was um, an attempt to vaccinate, uh, sort of roll out uh, measures step by step rather than just, you know, all of a sudden letting COVID rip through, through society. And so th- there is also a question of how much nuance is there going to be in China's policies going forward? I, and I think It's those factors to watch when it comes to figuring out how will Xi Jinping remain as we go forward.
1: And if you don't mind, I'd like to put you a bit on the spot, you know, as you shift your role and take on a role in Southeast Asia. I was going to ask you, if you were to advise, you know, the leadership of, you know, these small democratic Southeast Asian nations here where China is right at the doorstep, you know, what's your advice, you know, to, you know, the prime ministers and presidents of all these Southeast Asian nations that do hold to the principles of democracy, but really cannot avoid uh, or rely on the economic trade linkages that it already fosters with China then?
0: Uh, yeah, I think, I think you and your listeners probably know more about this than me, uh, having sort of um, grown up in Southeast Asia. I, I think, in a way, Southeast Asia has has been so intertwined with China for so many generations, you know, with overseas Chinese and trade links, Um, you know, all kinds of connections to China. So, you know, no matter where we are in the world, try to better understand the Chinese Communist Party. Because I, I think, you know, there is there is a lot of really bad analysis out there, which mm-hmm. comes from people bringing their own worldviews and their own assumptions to trying to understand China. And, and one thing I really hope that, the prince did was say, well, look, let's first try and understand Xi Jinping on his own terms. Let's try and understand the party on its own terms. And then, of course, we can do our analysis. We can be critical. We can say that, you know, we believe in liberalism, not authoritarianism. But but I think if your starting point is is just to use your own lens to view everything, that is um, a huge mistake. So um, this isn't probably advice just for Southeast Asians, but I think for everyone, uh, we should all try and better understand the the party on its own terms and then do our analysis of that.
1: Sulin, thank you for that. Very pertinent advice. That was Sulin Wong, the economist, correspondent and host of The Prince, a podcast on China's President Xi Jinping. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin followed by Enterprise, BFM
0: 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.